Hello, and welcome to Stumble Upon. I'm Austin. And I'm Emily. Today we are discussing To Be or Not To Be, directed by Ernst Lubitsch. As always, there'll be a shit ton of spoilers. But if that doesn't scare you, the Nazis might. So try not to overact as you pull on some beards, because we're in Gestapo territory with the hammiest of actors. Austin, do you have a synopsis you'd like to share? Yeah, I do. I am looking at... Oh my god, this synopsis is fucking weird. To be or not to be. During the Nazi occupation of Poland, an acting troupe becomes embroiled in a Polish soldier's efforts to track down a German spy. Which is kind of what happens in the film. I mean, yeah. I mean, it does happen. Yeah, absolutely happens. It's... It's it's not really. It's, it's just they're usually bad synopsis. So well, and synopsi. Well, even thinking about us trying to synopsi our film, <laughs> it's it's almost impossible to kind of get the nuance of something, like in a sentence. Yeah, because I don't even know. Like, if I was trying to describe the film to somebody, I'd be like, okay, so it's a comedy about World War Two that was shot before America got into World War Two, but was released after. We were in World War II. And already there, I've lost pretty much everybody. Yeah. So we're going to put some comedians in Gestapo uniforms. Yeah. How do you feel about that? We're going to we're going to make concentration camp jokes. While there are concentration camps happening and your loved ones are in them. Yeah. This should, this should be good, right? It's going to go over great. And we're going to make this before we enter the war and yet release it two months after we've been bombed mm-hmm. at Pearl Harbor. This yeah. should go over well, right? We yeah. Should, we're going to make money at the box it, office. Americans are notoriously good with dealing with comedy about traumatic events within months of the traumatic events oh, happening. Yeah, for sure. Satire is like, yeah, good at it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you summarize this film? At the time when it's happening in a way to actually encourage people to show the hell up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably a a film or I guess I'm going to guess that the the way that they assumed that they could get people to come was the stars that they had in it. That Jack Benny and Carol Lombard were going to be big enough uh, like draws to the world that uh, that people be like, oh yeah, it's a comedy with Carol Lombard. I loved her in uh, My Man Godfrey. Like I like she's really really funny. Like let's go and do that. Maybe, but according to some of the research I've done, Jack Benny wasn't getting a lot of traction in his career, even though he had done well. It wasn't getting a lot of offers, mm-hmm. and finding Maria Tura, uh, to, an actor to play Maria Tura, was really difficult. Mm-hmm. And Carol Lombard. Offered herself. So with that in mind, that the film was made prior to the U.S. entering World War II, Mm -hmm. was released a mere two months, almost to the day of when Pearl Harbor was hit. This film would have been extraordinarily difficult to release. Add it to it that the director, producer, and writer of it is German. Yeah. A German German of Jewish descent. Correct. But still, this is... The time of nuance in America. Yeah, still is great. We're great at nuance. <laughs> so I, it was, and, and proved to be extraordinarily difficult. Mm-hmm. Getting people to stay in the cinema, to not walk out, to not immediately dismiss it, I think was extraordinarily difficult. And even Jack Benny uh, had trouble with keeping his own father in the cinema. Yeah. His father was so upset to see him in the Nazi uniform, not 
willing to stick through it and immediately left the cinema and was so pissed at him and it took a lot of work to get his dad to go back. Mm-hmm. And Jack Benny then went on to say that his father ended up seeing it 46 times afterwards. He loved it so much. So to, to think about this film and to think about how the opening of this film is a satire of of the Nazis yeah, f- right out the gate. Well, it's even like a, a it's playing on the old newsreel type of idea right at the be- beginning with what's Adolf Hitler doing in in mm. in Warsaw like in, in Poland today like and it, like the news announcer the VO of it feels very much like a like straight out of the reels that the audience would have just seen mm-hmm. before the movies about this very subject right and it like it has this weirdly weirdly toned and and paced opening of like how did Hitler get here and then it's revealed through the story that it's not Hitler it's an actor playing Hitler, who's trying to prove to everybody that he can look enough like Adolf Hitler that people will buy that he is Adolf Hitler for a show they're putting on. For the performance of the Gestapo, which is the satirical piece they're about to perform that night. Yeah. Which everyone in town knew about. All these actors were very famous in yeah. town of Warsaw. Yeah. Did you name the city of Warsaw? Did you say what the name of the production that they were doing is? It's Gestapo, is yeah. it not? Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah, Which it's very like, direct. Like thinking about all the things that Lubitsch was trying to get away with here at the top of the film, like to do a comedy about World War II during World War II, and that the comedy includes actors putting on a play called Gestapo, in which the actors are continually trying to throw in joke lines. Oh God, it's so good. Lubitsch said something about how the play or the movie honors the fact that actors are always being actors, right? Yeah, I'll read you that quote. Actually, this is Lubitsch responding to the Philly Inquirer, who was shitting on him for being German and making comedy about Nazis in Poland. And so he wrote an open letter to the newspaper. Ah, Philly Inquirer. Here we go. (laughs) What I have satired in this picture are the Nazis and their ridiculous ideology. I've also satires the attitude of actors who always remain actors, regardless of how dangerous the situation might be, which I believe is a true observation. It can be argued if the tragedy of Poland realistically portrayed as in to be or not to be can be merged with satire. I believe it can be, and so do the audience which I observed during the screening of to be or not to be. But this is a matter of debate, and everyone is entitled to his or her point of view. But it is certainly a far cry from the Berlin-born director who finds fun in the bombing of Warsaw. Mm -hmm. So the point that you're bringing up is his observation of how actors are always actors, regardless of how dangerous the situation gets. That is a perfect distillation of what this film is about. Yeah. It's and it's uh, like getting back to the synopsis. It's a much harder sell to try to sell a film with that sort of ideology behind it. Like we're going to make fun of the ideology of uh, of Nazis and the inherent truth in some actors. Well, and it's I mean, unless you love actors yeah. as we do, when yeah. you work with actors as much as you do, as much as we do, then you have an, a real affinity for their willingness to throw themselves on stage and perform just yeah. about anything you offer. It's incredible, and it is to be honored. And I think that's what he does with this film. He really honors the profession of acting. Yeah, he honors in a lot of ways the action of saying, I have all these stakes that I know are behind me. I understand what the scene is about. 
And now I'm going to play that scene directly and honestly with this person. So let me ask you a question. Please. It's incredible in a lot of ways to me that he was able to make this film. Mm-hmm. That he was able to get funding. Like even though knowing what the, the, the studio system was back then, which was you were contracted for amount of films and, and whatnot. And that, and, and there was a whole backing of the studio behind all the films. And you had a place to put them always because the studios had deals with theaters. Mm-hmm. So like regardless of that, the idea that he was able to make, that Lubitsch was able to make a film about Nazi Germany and the invasion of Poland and make it a comedy is an incredible kind of power play. Mm-hmm. But yet... Lubitsch wasn't this incredibly successful filmmaker. Like, he had successes, Mm -hmm. and he was well into his career by the time that he made this film. Correct. In, in, in 42. But, like, like, he, I, I am right in assuming, or, or right in stating that, like, he had had a lot of middling films or, or failures. Yes. And he also had Oscar nominations. Okay. So he had, but he, he had a big chunk of films in the early 1920s that, middling to, to limited success mm-hmm. i don't think he had any real bombs but he didn't necessarily make money off yeah. of his films uh, and, and he had worked with a lot of really good actors like he had worked with frederick march and miriam hopkins mm-hmm. and gary cooper uh before this like, mary pickford uh, yeah oh mary pickford chevalier uh jeanette mcdonald like a lot of really like of the time a lot of really uh, well-known performers. Yeah, I think his big success was, I think once he hit sound films. Mm-hmm. So the tw- late 20s early to the early 40s. Thinking about some of his early films, which we have seen, like and we love, like Trouble in Paradise mm-hmm. and Design for Living, especially Design for Living. His like, pre-code work. Yeah, it is, they're really different in a lot of ways than what this film is. Because mm-hmm. they're a lot more... Sexual. Yes. It was said that he found sex amusing. And people's perspective at the time was that sex was terrifying. Hmm. Which, of course, isn't totally surprising to think about um, if you don't have the right for an abortion. Right. If you don't have a means for birth control, Mm -hmm. then sex would tie you down to somebody in perpetuity. And and something that he also, like, especially in Trouble for Paradise and, or Trouble in Paradise Mm -hmm. and uh, Design for Living, the women of his films, Miriam Hopkins, Kay Francis, are liberated women. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. I think. Is it? I think it's the smiling lieutenant that has on the song, spru- or has in it, spruce up your lingerie. Yeah, like all like all these really sexually frank pieces of cinema. Which the reason why I bring this up is that I don't think that it's a, like it shouldn't be a surprise that a that a, a filmmaker who is so interested in the frankness of a situation and finding the comedy in it would be interested in tackling Nazism. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. It's a really interesting way to get there. That his willingness to be direct, so direct about sex, in fact, that it's part of the reason that the Hayes Code comes into play mm-hmm. because of his films like Trouble in Paradise. Yeah. He's so he's so open. Mm-hmm. And if you guys haven't seen Design for a Living, yeah. you absolutely must yeah. get your hands on that film because polyamory 
Mm-hmm. You know, this is like queerness at its best. It's awesome. Yeah, the the sexual chemistry between Frederick March and Gary Cooper in that film is fucking unbelievable. Yeah. Like that that film is so far and away ahead of its time today. Yeah. It, it's unbelievable to to think that people could to think that we were having these conversations in the 30s. And yet we can't have these conversations in the 20s. Right. The 2020s. Right. <laughs> Literally. But like we're back a decade mm-hmm. a, century a century later. We're back. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to think about and ask. I mean, it's something that I've certainly chewed on a bunch, which is what if the Hayes Code had never come into play mm-hmm. and we just allowed cinema to continue? I mean, this all is because of, you know, vaudeville mm-hmm. is there was a lot more sexual innuendo. There was a lot more freedom to have his conversations because, again, the theater Mm-hmm. gives more space for this it it gives like art gives more space for it period which is mm-hmm. part of the reason that that people come after art as soon as as one of the 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 first canaries in the coal mine sort mm-hmm. of sort of thing like when you're trying to put put oppression down to be like like i've long said and i've said to you many times that i think the idea behind christianity is that the first sin is knowledge and the first the original sin is knowing something and then questioning the next thing and the idea of art is well here's something that we know let's find some questions behind it and see what we can ask see if we can push your boundaries between our 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 visual understanding of things our emotional understanding of things our mental our our literal like all of it can a woman fall in love with two best friends mm-hmm they can they fall in love with her and can the three of them live together in happiness and how does that work mm-hmm. what does that look like yeah and or can a theater troupe take on the gestapo mm-hmm. yeah yeah they can because everybody's a fucking bumbling idiot mm-hmm. is somebody that you fall fast in love with actually the person that you should be with or does that just mean that you fall fast in love that's trouble in paradise i love it i like, love it all so i think yeah you're right of course this director would take a stab at Nazism mm-hmm. as a Jewish man from Germany. I mean, his heart must have been just wrecked. Mm-hmm. This is this was the country that was doing this. Yeah. And of course, he's going to have the responsibility of that mm-hmm. and say, "Well, I have to satire it. I have to, I have to take a stab at this yeah. with satire because I have to shed light on the absurdity of Nazism." Mm-hmm. And I have to show that even my most ridiculous hammy actors could fucking take them down. Yeah, all of that. Because I I want to get back to the hammy actors because I think it's an interesting concept that he brings up over mm-hmm. and over again and, and puts to good use. But but I have a question for you because I, I, I think that you and I have very different experiences on how we were introduced to uh, World War II and, and the atrocities because – you spent your middle and high school years in other countries, and I was here in America. And so, like, when I was introduced to the, the concentration camps and when I was introduced to the concept of what the Nazis actually were doing, it w- like, there was a, a portion of the conversation that was, and then we discovered the concentration camps. And it was only something that was presented to me in my education as an after-the-fact sort of event. That we didn't, that America didn't know about the concentration camps until after the war. Like it was presented to me, and I really dramatically remember this that it wasn't until America, Americans went in to liberate them with uh, 
with the camera crews as well, and we got documentation and saw how bad it was that we truly understood what the concentration camps were. And in this film, there are jokes about concentration camps. Yeah, so clearly we knew about them. And so clearly, so clearly I feel like I was fed a lie by my education growing up. And I and I was wondering if that was like like was that even a talking point in your European education or was it just always part of the the narrative of of World War II or do you remember having any sort of distinction? I so as you said, I did not come to the United States till university to study and spent most of my childhood in Europe. And no, it was never there was no surprise at the concentration camp uh, story. Like yes, we traveled all over Europe. Uh, with school trips to actually study the spaces where World War II took place, where World War I took place. I get distinctly remember going to Ypres and spending time in the trenches. I distinctly remember going to Normandy and spending time on the beaches, spending time in the cemeteries. There was a lot of exploration of space mm-hmm. where World War I and World War II took place. And it was always part of my education. So I have very limited American history mm-hmm. and very limited understanding of American history. Mm-hmm. So I did not know that was something that was presented to you yeah. uh, as if it was a surprise because it had been a huge, th- this was the reason, this was one of many reasons, but it was also that, you know, Nazism was trying to take over Belgium and was trying to take over, you mm-hmm. know, we had the air raids in England. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I had all of that stuff for my education. I, I can't believe that that was even an idea to present. But of course you see by this film mm-hmm. that that was bullshit. Yeah. Like it, I remember that the lasting impression I should say that I have about, about world war two and America's involvement in it was we came to save Europe. Like that's, that is what I feel like whether that's whether or not that is the actual teachings that I had growing up, what I feel from my educational history is this, that America came to save England and by proxy uh, France and the rest of uh, Europe from the Nazis. But, well, but to a later, greater or lesser extent, that is part of the education, but it wasn't so, it was that we were running out of resources. Like mm-hmm. we needed more support mm-hmm. and American America had a big enough army to come in and be that backup, be mm-hmm. those resources, bring in those extra supplies. Yeah. Cause yeah, the, I mean, look what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Right. And I, I, I actually, the reason that I, like I'm kind of living with this here in the moment is that I think that, I think the interesting thing about this film is that it's, that it's a document showing a different truth mm-hmm. that, that the kind of rose-colored nostalgia that can be presented to what America, why America came to the war, or at least how it was handed down to me, is not true. And what's interesting to me about that is, in today's cinema, it feels like the way that we address that that ripping of the bandaid of a rose-colored uh, of rose-colored glasses is to show hyperviolence, to show the actual pain and suffering of it. Rather than to be like, you know what? We can make fun of this. We can use comedy as a weapon. We can use these hammy actors. We can use scenes that don't seem to have anything to do with uh, with the war, but have everything to do with humanity and how humans interact. And all of those elements of the film are the things that I think are the most striking and the most daring, and probably the things 
from what you read earlier about Lubitsch, in Lubitsch's response, why people in the time were like, I don't fucking want to deal with this. I want to just, I just need to get into this rah-rah mentality of, of hyper-violence to save the world. Well, comedy is harder. So I would say that part of that is it's just so much harder to be funny. And it's so much harder to be funny about really hard subjects. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. Comedy is more impactful. Mm -hmm. Like there is, an, there is something to be said for, you know, giving people a, a real ex visceral experience of, of trauma mm -hmm. to help humanize a certain situation. Mm -hmm. But you're a bazillion times correct when you say comedy will be more impactful. You'll have a greater empathy for the characters at the end if you've laughed mm -hmm. throughout in my opinion, mm -hmm. but also in the opinions of others and other people, and I don't know. Yeah, facts, status, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. statistics. I, I would, I would like to put. Emily an, just broke. I would like to put an asterisk next to what you just said and say, "Cite unfounded." <laughs> <laughs> no sources cited. Yeah, but I do like. I think that there's what I would say in response to that is not like I think that comedy is an untapped tool and not in the comedy of sentimentality of like life is beautiful or something that is. No, you're talking about satire, right? They, like something that is just doesn't carry the weight of the of of fear. There's so much fear in to be or not to be as yes. well. When the last sequence of the film, uh, last big sequence of the film, is something that Tarantino just ripped off to some degree for Inglorious Bastards. I'm so surprised to hear you say that Tarantino stole something from someone else. Well, maybe I shouldn't say ripped off. Like, ripped off might be a little bit too harsh. Quentin Tarantino is probably America's best collage artist. Yeah, like, he's like a really good scrapbooker. Yeah, he's really good at scrapbooking. Like, he, and like, I could just see him pasting things and post it, putting in his book yeah. and be like, it's my film. He has like a little wasabi tape. Yeah. And he puts around yeah, like, every little scene he steals from another movie. He puts hearts around people. Clip art. He puts hearts around different people and it's like, I like this person. I will use this song in my movie. And, and not to get on a Tarantino bit, but like he at least knows where his references are and oh. he's un he's unabashedly telling you that he's doing it. Oh yeah, he's not hiding it. It's yeah. just nobody else watches those movies so they don't realize that none of those ideas are his. Yeah, or that nobody cares or like, "Oh, we're just going to we're just going to put all the the props on the, the on this white man." Well, it, it yes. I'm going to take all of Asian cinema and take it as my own. Mm. Um, but it is interesting as well to think about the idea of the struggle that we've had, certainly, as mm -hmm. filmmakers, is people need to see that you can pull something off mm -hmm. by you having pulled it off yeah. and don't want to invest in you or believe in you until it's already been proven that it's been done. So you're yeah. like, but I already did it, so I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do the next thing. And they're like, yeah, but we need to know you can do it. So what he did is go, here are all these successful movies. I'm going to remake them, but in a totally different way. <laughs> and people are like, okay, here's money. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it, kind of brilliant it, it's confusing new ip with old ip you're like oh no 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 it's all like it's all the same but it's just put together in a different way it's like if somebody looked it's at a puzzle and was like i can make a different puzzle out yeah, of this if like, i just push on a patient cut it here cut it there a yeah. little bit of glue but jumping way back that last scene where they're trying the the acting troupe things have gone sideways for them and their initial way out of Poland has fallen through. Granted, their initial way out of Poland only would have gotten two of, yeah, uh, two two of, the, of people, two the people out of Poland instead of the whole acting troupe, which seems a little selfish. But whatever. We can get back to the selfishness of all the characters later on if we want to. But like, 
they they devise this plan where the actor who looks like Hitler is going to hide in the bathroom of a theater while a performance is happening. Their theater. Their theater while a performance is happening where Hitler is actually there. Mm -hmm. And they're going to cause a diversion with uh, one of the... One of the troop, a Jewish man, mm-hmm. Greenberg, making a scene and doing a Shylock speech. Yes, the one that he always wants to perform. And and using that speech and that diversion to get all of them onto Hitler's plane to fly out. Mm-hmm. And if you think about just for a minute the stakes of that scene and how so high, like all the things that could go wrong, and the fact that. It's performed by the actors and presented by Lubitsch in this straightforward, we're just going to go for it. Mm -hmm. Like how all scenes and all acting happen. There's all these make-believe things going on around us, but we're going to do this dramatically. And we're going to do it like with all the conviction in the world. Mm -hmm. It's like if you watch the behind the scenes footage of like a Marvel movie and you see all the people with little dots on them and leotards like acting really hard and angrily and you're like... This is actually really all funny. by themselves. Yeah, they're really funny people doing right? funny fucking things, but it's... they're doing it really with a ton of conviction. Yes, this is a version of that, mm-hmm. but this is a version of that where the stakes are different, and there are actual people that they're working with, and they have to be as convincing in that scene. They have to convince the Gestapo that this man is Hitler, who's not Hitler, who they no. just walked into the theater. They hope to fuck everybody believes, and that they're going to. And they, all of them, are going to take this Jewish man out of the theater to be tortured and shot. But they're not going to do that because they're going to get on a plane and take him to to England for safety. It's incredible, the performance of everyone in that scene. But in every scene. In every scene when they have to deal with the Gestapo. And it's so incredible mm-hmm. to watch how they perform when they're sort of in control of it. Mm-hmm. Or when they're not. So you watch, especially Carol Lombard is so fun to watch because you watch her, her performance when she's not necessarily the focus of the scene, but is, is just when she's listening Mm -hmm. is so incredible because she will go miles in each scene and none of it is overacted. Everything is perfection. Like the scene when she thinks that Colonel Earhart is telling her that her husband, who has been Professor Slutsky, has been murdered. Her face is just dropped. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, she starts to find out that we're talking about the actual Professor Sletsky, mm-hmm. not her husband, how she rebounds back, mm-hmm. but then has to continue to perform yeah. like she's upset. It's just, wow, the range, the spectrum. There's so much going on in that scene. And just just to clarify a quick second, mm. Jack Benny is playing uh, Joseph Tura. And at a certain point in the film, they realize this guy, Professor Selensky, is a Nazi spy. And they are trying to get something from him, but what happens is they end up killing him. Mm-hmm. So Joseph Tura, he has to present himself as a professor in front of the Gestapo so that he can get his wife free from being, like, not imprisoned, but because she's not a prisoner, but she cannot leave this hotel where the, uh, where the Nazis are staying until... Professor Selensky comes back and releases her. Which I don't think he knows. 
I don't think he knows. They don't know that at the time. He just has to go back. He starts to pretend to be him because they realize that they still need to meet with he. Solinsky still needs to meet with Colonel Earhart. No, he doesn't. Ha- I, that happens. Like one of the brilliant things about the plotting of this film is that each event happens in a way that it ha- the next event has to happen on top of it. But he so they kill Solinsky. Because they need to, they're trying to get all of his papers, and he has to go back to get the papers at the hotel. And when he gets back to the papers to his to the hotel, there's another Nazi waiting for him, who take, take him. him to Colonel Earhart, who Tura was just impersonating with Zelensky to get the papers that were actually the duplicates were actually at the hotel. And the reason he discovers that Maria is still in the hotel room is only because he goes back to get the extra backup papers. Right. That they need to get their hands on so that we don't reveal who the Polish resistance is. And what's like... And we have seen this movie a million times and it still could be confusing. Well, it, what it is is... Perfection. It's it's how a linear plot can be convoluted. You don't fucking need to be Christopher Nolan to have a really convoluted plot. Mm-hmm. You can just have things that happen linearly and them build upon each other to the degree that you as an audience are following perfectly clear, but trying to describe to somebody who hasn't seen it what is actually happening is you are basically Maria Tura in the background reacting to things going, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Okay, so this? Oh my God. Like, uh. like there's so many moments with her. Like you could just watch the film with the sound off to just watch her responses and still laugh. Carol Lombard is so good. And then also, okay, imagine watching this film without the sound on, which I now want to try. Because you have so many things that are giving you all the clues to pay to how to follow the film, how to process what's being taught, what's being shared, mm-hmm. is another element of that. We, we watched a really great breakdown of it on the Criterion channel of the lighting. Yeah. And how the lighting by the cinematographer really is directing the audience on how to process the scene. Yeah. So the scenes in the theater where the acting troupe is in control is really brightly lit. Uh-huh. But once we get into the scenes of terror with the Gestapo, we're talking about the noir lighting scenes. Yeah. They're it, dark. There's lots of shadow. Well, I would even say that the the Gestapo or the real world. Yes. Like, once, like, we, once Germany has moved in, uh-huh. once the troops have come into Warsaw and blown everything up, you start getting that noir lighting. Yeah. Look for the shadows and ask yourself, what is the director, what is the cinematographer saying in these moments with these dark shadows? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, and, and again, speaks to what the, the the reviewers at the time were having trouble with, with the film, is that these, like, these two things, these two things that you're talking about, the really well, brightly lit scenes, and then the dark scenes, are incredible juxtapositions. Mm-hmm. And so the film starts off with comedy in light and scary shit in dark Mm -hmm. and then there's a scene about maybe 50 minutes in 45 minutes in where tura disguised as the professor goes to meet colonel Earhart, and the scene is dark but the scene plays out as a echo of an earlier scene with tura playing Earhart and the actual professor solensky being interviewed by him Mm -hmm. and there's a repetition of things the repetition is exquisite there's a repetition that builds on jokes like the the colonel Earhart finds out that in england they call him concentration camp Earhart, and he finds this 
the real Earhart finds this hilarious. And when he finds it hilarious, there's a great joke mm-hmm. where Torah says to him, that's how I thought you'd react. It's such <laughs> a great actor line. And it's because earlier in the scene, like the scene before, Torah was just fucking laughing at that line. And it's so weird. And I can imagine that people looking at this at this in the moment going, I don't know how to process this. And it's why I think that time matters almost more than anything for film and why Mm -hmm. you can't judge it in the moment. Because that scene plays really well in in 2020, in 2022. It plays really well now. Mm -hmm. Whereas back then, you're like, are we, is it okay to laugh at this joke? Well, what if we were making this film right now, not this film, but a film similar to this, but about Russia Mm -hmm. and the Ukraine? Or and you, we were making all this comedy about Russia blowing up mm-hmm. the Ukraine and ha ha ha, isn't this funny? Yeah. It would be really hard to sell. Well, think about it even this. Like if we were making this, making a comedy about the insurrectionists. Yeah. And you and you went out and tried to make like a Vaclav Havel or, or a absurdist like rhinoceroses type of play mm-hmm. about this. And you'd be like... Are we, is it okay to laugh at this? Are we going to get killed by these motherfuckers? Like, what is happening with this? Like, mm-hmm. how do we, how do we process something that we actually think is a joke? I mean, I, late night TV is able to do it with jokes of showing, showing a clip and then uh, showing a counter clip or a counter joke so that you get context of the two things and then you find your, your way to a joke or you find your way to laughter. You're where, talking about like Seth Meyers or something like that? Exactly. Or Trevor Noah or even uh, John Oliver. like Amber Ruffin. Yeah, like you're able to find these the comedy through the construction. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a piece like this, the construction has to be built in itself. And so... The thing that Lubitsch does, which is incredible to me, is through those early scenes of fake Hitler walking in Poland with the Heil me joke that they... The, Heil me joke is amazing. Like, uh, like that, Heil the, myself. Heil myself. That the, the, that the fake Hitler does when he comes into the room. Lubitsch is building this construction. He's giving us all these incredible clues, I find. So he does that, and then Greenberg comes up. It makes a funny joke. And you're like, I don't want a joke there, the director says. It'd be says a him. terrific laugh. It'd be a terrific laugh. That's what he says. And so Lubitsch is telling us over and over again that he's going to be going for a laugh in moments that seem serious. And he builds Absolutely. that construction, much like the late night TV shows build the construction of how this comparison comedy comes. Yes, that's perfect. That's a perfect description. Because you have Maria Tura, shortly thereafter, her introduction to us is her walking out in this gorgeous gown. It's a stunning gown. Mm-hmm. And and she's showing the director, Dobosh, this is my gown. This is what I'm going to wear. And he's like, wait, you can't wear that in the concentration camp scene. And she's like, what are you talking about? The lights will come up and I'll there I'll be lying in this terrific gown. And of course, you get Greenberg going, it would get a terrific laugh. <laughs> and then that is exactly the gown she wears to go meet Selinsky yeah. in the hotel with the Gestapo with the very real threat that she could end up in a concentration camp if they fucking figure out. Wearing that dress. Wearing that very dress. Yep. And it's like, this is like, oh, it's so dark. Mm-hmm. It's such a dark comedy. I love it so much. But there are real stakes. Yeah. And I think that's the reason this movie works so well, is there are actual stakes for these characters. Mm-hmm. And they still, they see them, and they jump in headfirst anyway. And they go, well, what the fuck else am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I have to be part of the resistance. Yeah. This fucking matters. 
And one of the things that I think that like he's able to do is he shows those characters, the the Maria Tura, Tura and Joseph Tura early on being self-centered and hams and like Maria Tura is having an affair with an aviator who's played by Robert Stack. Like they're all these really self-involved characters. And then there's a an air raid that starts off the second part of the film and things turn dark. And I think that what what Lubitsch does incredibly well, and all the performers, in fact, do incredibly well in this film, is we've had this moment where they're all kind of fickle, mm-hmm. non-people. Like, if we met those characters, those people, we'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be friends with them. They're kind of assholes. But then the second part of the film, all these characters are put into situations in which their humanity and their strength of character come out. Maria Torug having to go to the Gestapo headquarters to try to get the documents from the real professor Mm -hmm. and then her husband trying to trying to get uh the professor to give him the documents at the at the theater where they where they're staging their play and they've restaged the settings for the play so that it looks like gestapo headquarters Mm -hmm. like we see them in real situations then being real people trying their best in an impossible situation to get an outcome that is not likely for them. Mm-mm. And we see them stumble, but we also see them uh, we see them succeed and we get to care about them through empathy of experience. Mm-hmm. That these these characters that were once like just kind of flippant fickle people are now interesting. It's this other side of every coin though. He he does and it's so quick the flip. Mm-hmm. You know, this thing matters. Wait, no, this is war. This yeah. matters. He's like, "Oh, somebody walked out of my soliloquy." He says right at the beginning, Joseph Tura. I, just, I can't believe it. He walked out of my soliloquy. It's a thing that happens to every actor that every actor dreads. <laughs> right. And then it's, no, it's war, you idiot. He's yep. like, I can't. And he's going on about his soliloquy being walked out of. Yeah. And, and, you know, you get the perspective shift, the quick turn. Yeah. And it's this constant quick turn. Uh-huh. Um, but they, but I love is that they always stay true. It doesn't matter that they then become these heroes. They're still fucking idiots. Yeah. And at the end of the day, all they want to do is perform and act mm-hmm. and be... And be able to be on the stage, which is such a wonderful, I don't know, it's because we grew up in the theater, you and I both. Yeah. Like we made so many plays. We've been so much part of the theater as part of our, you know, core selves. And so there's this understanding of the great love of performance mm-hmm. and, and being it, in a theater space and the safety of it. All of what you're saying is echoed in the great line that that Greenberg says about carrying a sphere. The way that he says it, the same way twice. Yeah. But with such different intonation. Uh-huh. All we get to do is carry a spear mm-hmm. versus all I had to do. All we had to do was carry a spear. When would I get to do that again? Yeah. This is all I had to do. It was the greatest thing I ever had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Will I ever get to carry a spear again? Yeah. My Meanwhile, they're shoveling. Yeah. I love that they're shoveling when they're talking about. Yeah. Shoveling snow. Thinking about wishing they could be back on the stage. Just carrying. The, their whole life was just carrying a spear. That was it. Yeah. That's all I had to do. It was yeah. great. We get to perform, carry a spear around, be all these different side characters and all these different plays. Mm-hmm. And it's and what's wonderful about the character of Greenberg and all the side characters in, in a lot of ways in the film is that they are given equal weight and time to the Maria Torres, mm-hmm. to, uh, to the Professor Stolensky's. Like all these major characters, we feel as much, I think, about... Greenberg and and the and the director of the play Dobish Dobish 
and all of these side characters as as we do the the mains like they they get a moment to shine which is something that is incredibly empathetic mm-hmm. about this like there's no like there's always the line in theater that there's no small parts and here's a film of no small parts like yeah. like the guy who the, the, there's one character there's one actor in the the in the troupe that they uh like that when he performs his line they're like what is his line? What you are, I wouldn't eat. Yep. Are you it's calling like, me a ham, sir? Yes. And from that moment on, anytime you see him, you're like, that guy's a fucking ham. He is, and he almost and, ruins it for everybody. But his bluster also saves the day in certain moments. His his hamminess and his willingness to just go at something really hard. You're like, that's a little bit too hard, buddy, but I'm really glad to like we got the point. Awesome. Yeah. Or I mean, uh, even just down to like the makeup artist when he's he he's like building first he's designing what uh one of the characters who plays Hitler mm-hmm. looks like, and later he's the one with all the beards. Yep. And he and he hi, he stuffs extra beards in Tura's pocket, mm-hmm. which allows the next thing to happen with which, Zelensky. Which is which is just an incredible scene. Let's just touch on that scene. Like the there's a scene after uh, Tora, who's impersonating the professor, has first uh, talked to Colonel Earhart. He has to go back because he's trying to get him and his wife out of the country. So right. he's, he's trying to set up a plane ride. Uh, unbeknownst to him, the Nazis have found the real professor dead. Right. And so when he shows up, the Nazis think they're going to pull a fast one and get this guy to uh, <laughs> to to be unmasked as as an infiltrator. And so they put him in a room with the dead body. So we've got Tara and Zelensky. And because dead Zelensky. And dead Zelensky. And because we've met the the makeup artist and because we have the little brief scene where he says I put extra beards in his pocket, Tura has a moment where he realizes he can shave Zelensky's dead body. Put on a fake beard and then try to bluff his way out of it. Yeah. Which is just a fucking great scene. It's a and masterpiece. It's such a great fucking setup. And has a great line. Yeah. Here is a man with a beard and you didn't even pull it. <laughs> yes. Which is echoed when when it, the acting troupe believes that all has lost. They come bursting into Earhart's office thinking that they're saving Tura from execution when he's actually gotten out and they arrest him and pull off his beard and like, and say basically the same fucking line to him. And it's just so goddamn absurd. It is, especially because you get the sense that they all talk this way because they're all best friends. They hang out with each other all the time. Uh-huh. So naturally, they're all saying the same shit yep. and they're doing the same things yep. because they all think the same fucking way. <laughs> yep. Because they're... Group of buddies. <laughs> yeah. <and they're, laughs> it's so fucking weird and so fucking lovely to it's watch. Great. Yeah, to watch this scene. And you're just like, okay, what kind of absurdist American film now has that? What it becomes is now stoner comedy instead of yeah. instead of really witty, brilliant setups. I can't. I know it's all improv now. Right. And you cannot do this with improv. No. You can't. You have to fucking craft this. Yeah. This is hard as shit to pull off. Yeah. This is why this is 25 years into his career that he's writing this. Yeah. It's not his first fucking debut crap. Right. Stop obsessing yeah. over the per- first film and start paying attention to the whole 
yeah career of a of a creator of a group of creators yeah but yeah yeah, yeah. no it's what is absurd and exquisitely written today i i, I don't know especially for comedies no no yeah as a comedy and not just comedies that have one punchline, but have a punchline or like, okay, so that's the second punchline. What's the third? What's the fourth? How can we pay that idea off in a different way? Because even at the very end of this film, when they land in, when they parachute and land in Scotland, in Scotland, like first you get two Scottish farmers seeing the guy who's impersonating Hitler land and being Hitler. And they're just like, what the fuck are what we doing with are we this? supposed to do? And then, and then there's an interview the the interviewers ask Joseph Toro what he wants to do, and she keeps he wants to play Hamlet. <laughs> he wants to play Hamlet, and so the last shot of the film is him going up to play Hamlet, and another fucking guy standing up and leaving during his to be or not to be speech to go fuck his wife. Right. Meanwhile, Robert Stack's character, who did that the first time twice Zubinsky, in the movie, yep. is sitting there like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. <laughs> so you have two of her lovers yep. being like, "What's happening?" Right. Like, it's so great. Like, oh, and of course, you don't know, is it actually somebody getting up or is it somebody just has to pee? Yeah, but it like... The, and it's so great. And it doesn't matter. The film sets up so many punchlines that it's like, okay, so how do I find another way to make this joke? How do I make another yes. joke? How do I find another joke? And it makes it makes complete sense to me. Billy Wilder, whose film we did on this podcast uh, a long the time apartment. ago, he had a sign on his door or in his, in his, his office that said, what would Lubitsch do? Mm. And Will Wilder wrote a film for for Lubitsch early in his career, and Wilder was also a a, a German immigrant. He suffered for the same sort of thing that a lot of Germans did in the 1930s. He left Germany because of the fucking Nazi movement and moved to Hollywood to try to make his make his life. And like he worked with Lubitsch, and then was like, "This is the type of person that I'm going to uh, emulate my career off of." And if you watch Wilder's films, they have the same sort of like comedy uh, like ideas they have the same sort of like how do we build these intricate plots mm-hmm. where humanity and empathy get in the way and and dictate what narrative is going to happen yeah definitely look at the apartment for an example of that yeah or or even uh double indemnity mm-hmm. some uh, like it hot some like it hot like a lot of his fucking films have the same sort of brilliant level of comedy the comedy that just lives with you in a really nice way an irony that that just kind of needles you mm-hmm. in in a way that you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Like that's what's gonna fucking get you in the end. It's a lost art form right now, and for anyone out there that is a comedy screenwriter, mm-hmm. like yeah, I, we challenge you to look for the third, fourth, fifth level joke. Mm-hmm. It's so hard, and and don't just give it to the main character. No, give, give it, it to everyone. Give it to give it to the third, fourth, fifth build character, so that. W- the punctuation of that joke can come from a place that you're not expecting. Yes. Have it come from the wings. Yeah. Bring your comedy in from the wings. Like it's like one of the reasons that I know that, uh, that Lubitsch is a really smart writer and, and, and a really intelligent filmmaker is like, there is like, as we were watching it this last time, like I, I, I realized for the first time, the subtle joke of, uh, Joseph and Maria that he's like, that he's making this, uh, Joseph and Mary joke early in the film where Maria and Joseph are talking about their kind of differences, like how they talk on top of each other, how they clamor for fame. And then Maria says, if I got pregnant, I'm not sure that I would like, I'm not sure that you wouldn't give birth something to that degree. She she says, if, if I were to be pregnant, 
if we were to have a baby, I'm not sure that I'd be the mother. And his response is, I would just be happy to be the father. Right. And you're like, oh. Virgin Mary joke. Yeah. You're making a Virgin Mary joke, a really, really layered Virgin Mary joke that you're that you're probably not, like, people will laugh at it because of the bickering between the husband and wife, but not laugh at it because of the fact that it's Joseph and Mary and Joseph saying to Mary that I'd just be happy to be the dad. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's a great deep cut. Like it's a super deep cut, and the thing is, all these, all his references, all his references to Shylock, to, to life in Germany, to what it means to be an actor, what it means to have a, a code that you live by that makes you a monster, but also makes you open to ridicule, which is all of his views of Nazism in this film. It it's all so layered and intelligent within it that it's hard to, it, it it's hard to describe in any other terms than glowing. I think the next thing I want to talk about is what a wonderful feminist character Maria Tura is. So Carol Lombard gets to play this character who is a total badass. She's a liberated woman. She's married, but she has as many affairs as she wants. She has the career she adores. Mm -hmm. She's the most famous actor in Warsaw, as told to us many times. So she gets to have a kick-ass career in the early 40s. She gets to be a sexy-ass player, has sex with whomever she wants, and her husband knows about it, and he's like, whatever, we have an open relationship. I mean, I'm going to be a little bit cranky about it. Mm -hmm. Just I don't want to know, just as long as I get to keep acting. Do you think that that that's his attitude? Because I don't think that he's aware of how many affairs she's having. I think that he is. He just doesn't want to know about it. And the reason I say that is because that really wonderful scene right mm. before they're about to go into the theater to try and trick the Gestapo yeah. to get the plane, to get out of Warsaw is, is when he lets Robert Stack's character say goodbye to her mm-hmm. because they don't know if any of them are going to survive. He gives him that moment. You probably want to say goodbye to and he steps away and yeah, he comes back in and he kind of, yeah, he, he, he hustles it along. He, he doesn't want to like let it happen too much. Yeah. But he also is like, you know, you can say goodbye because you obviously have a relationship with her too. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't think he wants it flaunted in front of him mm-hmm. because it would hurt his own ego. He's supposed to be the best, the best right. actor, the most incredible, great, great Polish actor, Joseph Tura. Yeah. So of course that would totally bruise his ego. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as long as he gets to be the great, great actor, Joseph Tura with his name bigger on the sign, then what does he fucking care what she's doing? Right. And she's like, yeah, I mean, you know, as long as he doesn't know about it, I can like uh, have all the people that admire me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think she's a total feminist badass, and yeah. and and when she gets the opportunity to take over in the Gestapo and to like, ha- and and is being played to be a a spy for them, mm-hmm. and she's like, okay, I'm going to work this angle. I'm going to see what I can do with this. I can do this. I can manipulate you. Of course, it's huge ego, but also everybody's a human. And that's the point I think that Lubitsch is trying to say that the Nazis are humans too and most of them are fucking idiots. Mm -hmm. And being a kid of a diplomat, I can safely say that bureaucrats in general, most are a bunch of fucking morons. Some are fucking brilliant. There's really good people that are diplomats and then there's really big dingleberries that are diplomats. Mm -hmm. That's the truth of every field. Any field you're in, you're going to have people that are great at their career, pretty good at their career and mediocre as fuck and wondering how they got that job. Mm -hmm. But they keep it. And so I love that he says that essentially about about the Nazis yeah. and and then also about the theater troupe. Yeah. It's something interesting that you brought up there as well uh, early on that 
Joseph Tura believes that he's the most famous actor in Poland. But he is constantly, constantly, <laughs> constantly reminded that he is not. That nobody knows who the fuck that, he is. That, that everybody knows who Maria Tora is. Yeah. She's a uh, total babe. Al- almost everybody is. Professor Zelensky doesn't. But, but that's because that's what reveals that he's not actually a Pole. Right. And so, like, there's that moment early in the film where it's uh, presenting, like, He's talking to, like, he's upset that that they had a fight and he just wants her to know that he talked to the director and they were thinking he wanted to put her name first on the next play. But um, she's like, oh, that's so great. But but we're not going to do it because we knew that you wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't be upset by it. Like, there's such a wonderful Mm -hmm. and interesting feminist undertone to that conversation as well of, like, these are men knowing full well that she, Maria Tora, is the star. And the reason that people come... But they can't do it. We can't put her on the top of the marquee because it's not proper. Like, the men have to be at the top of the marquee. Or his ego is so fucking huge he can't handle it. Right. Like, it is it is a, a, a another, like, satire of the fragile male ego in right. that regard. The patriarchy. Yeah. The fragile male ego. Yeah. Toxic masculinity. As you were saying, like, Carol Lombard is really amazing in this film. A couple of notes. Like, one, she wasn't initially cast in it uh, miriam hopkins who is an actor that we both love was originally cast in the part and then left because of creative differences with jack benny yeah it seems like they didn't get along yeah and then carol lombard kind of it seems literally asked to be in the film this ended up being the last film she was in she uh, unfortunately passed away in a plane crash right before the film was released which probably another reason that it was hard to kind of swallow her being comedic about this and not being out there talking about it like it's nonetheless like there are some things in this film that she is so good at the moment where she is seduced quote unquote by professor selinski where she sees caviar in his uh, uh in his hotel room where she talks about she couldn't have him over in in her shitty bedroom that the nazis took that away and him going, well, you have to be on the winning side. You have to know what's the right side, the winning side, our side. Mm-hmm. Like all the insidiousness that Selinsky presents as a reason to be part of the Nazi, be part of the Nazis, and that her, uh, like her response to his line about being uh, romantically involved with him. Like she, he says, it's a, a blitzkrieg and she wants a slow encirclement. Mm, great which, delivery. Which is just so, so good. And and then when he kisses her and her response and how she delivers the line of Heil Hitler is so fucking funny. Yeah, she's really funny. Like it's so, like, and, and I have to say, it is really weird to talk about this film and say those two words over and over again. Mm-hmm. But it's an important part of the comedy of the film because it is showing, I think, constantly the insane nature of this world that yeah. they are finding themselves in. Yeah, absolutely. Another element that's insane, actually, you bring up with Selensky offering her, he can fix her shitty apartment, he can give her back the things that she's used to. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, if you compare what Colonel Earhart offers her later mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of the film when he's trying to seduce her, when he's trying to bring her in. Selensky, you see, is very intelligent, very connected, mm-hmm. uh, has a lot of power and pull, yeah, and is 
willing to bring her up to the high echelons of the Nazi movement mm-hmm. and can offer her can offer her a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Then you juxtapose him with Colonel Earhart, who's like, I can get you three eggs a week. Yeah. And I mean, this is a pretty fucking good deal. I'll, I, there's this really beautiful bracelet that I just confiscated off of a person I just sent to concentration camp. Uh-huh. I'll get you that, yo. This yeah. is going to be a great deal for you. And and then, of course, the final push, the, the final joke, of course, being that, quote, Hitler shows mm-hmm. up as opposed to the actor to grab Maria and bring her with him. Yeah. Is that he's he's offering her three eggs, but she's sleeping with Hitler. Right. In his mind. It's such a but it but it's so good to see the difference in the the tiers mm-hmm. and how she is at every tier being mm-hmm. offered something, but just I don't know, I just really like the idea of the difference between I can give you back an amazing apartment, I can give you champagne, I can give you caviar, mm-hmm. I can get you three eggs in a week. Well, it it also, you know, in an interesting way it talks about like all of that talks about her actual character. Like as a person, like as written, that Maria Torah is a person that at every echelon from a pilot to a uh, professor who has ties to hire up people in the Nazi party to a colonel who can get her three eggs, every single person finds her desirous. But what she really wants is to be on the stage with a man in waiting in the audience. Like that's her dream. That's her favorite thing. Like, Like all of these other things, all these these points of attention that she could have because though we view her as a heroine as a as a person who's leading this film her as a character could choose to do any of the things that are offered to her yeah but the thing that she wants is the thing that she had yeah yes it's what she she wants to get back to that and she also wants to keep as she says what will i do about my conscience is when she when she's offered the role of being a nazi spy mm-hmm. she's like but what will we do about my conscience and I love that question mm-hmm. because she says it like, oh, whatever, no big deal. But you're, she's like, that's, I just told you my truth. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not doing this for you, dude. Yeah. But I'll, I'll play any character you need me to play. And says, in fact, does that. I did play a spy once. It was so fun. Except for I got shot in the third act. So That seems to happen with hmm. spies a lot. Yeah. And she's telling him at every step yeah. how she really feels about things. It's just people want to hear what they want to hear mm-hmm. out of her mouth. Right. Partly make her a great actor. Well, and also that's kind of the, the the narrative of a lot of people in power. They don't care what you actually believe. They just want to hear their words out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Just repeat the lines. Yeah. Like, and that's, say it with conviction. Yeah. Every single totalitarian uh, leader, be it uh, uh, a autocrat, be it a Republican cog, they want to hear you say the things that they believe, whether or not you do, just so they can sound smarter. Mm. And she's the most fascinating character for she's- me out of the whole lot, because Joseph Torah just wants to be famous. Yeah. She wants to live a life. She has so much depth. What is what is the fucking line from uh, State in Maine, the... She has a family. She has a home. Yeah. She has a family. Uh-huh. She is a good person. Yeah. Like, the difference between, like, a, a, a character like that and a character who has the conviction of their of their actual morals. Like, oh, my God. That line from Satan, Maine. She can't show her tits mm-hmm. because she has a home. Mm-hmm. That's a, the, her, Sarah Jessica Parker's character says that. I, she can't show her tits. 
because the film is about purity. Yeah. And it is about a nun sleeping with a firefighter. Yep. <laughs> That's what no, it's about. A, 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 an actor who has obviously never heard of nunsploitation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I do love that fucking film. Yeah. Even if David Mamet is a complicated and problematic person. Yeah. In his daughterage, he's become an ass. Yeah. It's such a shame. I really liked his earlier work. That was a guy who wrote really good fucking lines of mm-hmm. comedy. Really good satire. Yeah. Delivered a joke upon joke and satire and satire. <sighs> so good. The only second chance you get is the chance to make the same mistake twice. Yeah. Great line. Everybody wants money. That's why they call it money. That's why they call it money. Danny DeVito yeah. delivers that line to perfection. Fuck Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with this film? I don't know. It's such a great film. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we could talk about it for a couple more hours. Yeah. We could just go through each scene that's perfe- perfect and mm-hmm. execute it to perfection. Let me say perfect a couple more times. The perfect, 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 perfect scene of perfection. <laughs> but um, perfect. so no, I guess uh, there's so much more I would love to talk about. But I think that you should uh, just watch it. <laughs> I'm hoping everybody has. Yeah. Before listening, but if not, yeah, definitely yeah. check out all of Lubitsch's work. Yeah, you can't go wrong. No, either. there's nothing yeah. bad in his entire collection of films. Clooney Brown, God, that film. Clooney so Brown's good. so good. So good. Designed for a Living, The Smiling Lieutenant, Trouble in Paradise, mm-hmm. Love Parade. If you like musicals, he's got musicals for oh, you. Oh, the musicals are so good. Yep. There's so much good stuff. And Marion Hopkins is such a talented actor. Mm-hmm. She's in a bunch of his work. There's just... As is Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper's so good. So he, sexy. He's in a film we haven't seen yet. Bluebeard's Eighth Wife with him and Claudette Colbert, I Obviously, believe. I'm interested in this. Yeah. I think that one was written by Billy Wilder. Oh, man. Now you've got my attention. I mean, you have my attention at, Gary at every yeah. part of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yes. You, Let's you, watch it. You had my attention because I was listening. <laughs> because I'm here <laughs> it's making a, two, a podcast with you. So yeah. it's a two-person pod. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be like, oh, I forgot to listen today. You, you, Awkward. You, you lost my attention when you started speaking. You gained it when you stopped. <laughs> I had things to say. <laughs> we are so good at our job. So, okay. I mean, other than other than all that, no, I think we... I, I mean, think we just stumbled upon the entire end there. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Stumbled upon all the films. We're... Okay. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. But I think I, I will bring you back in highly recommending you uh-huh. to check out the Criterion Collection, if you have access to it, watching the short video uh, on the lighting of To Be or Not To Be, because it is a masterclass in like 15 minutes about three-point lighting. Yeah. It's really helpful, especially if you're an aspiring filmmaker, an aspiring cinematographer, mm-hmm. or you just would like to know more about lighting, which is always a good thing to know. This The, the discussion of the three-point lighting of To Be or Not To Be is just really good. It's really helpful. And it's just so interesting to think about controlling your audience and their focus through the use of shadow, through the use of light, when to have it be much more pronounced when to soften it, mm-hmm. what impact that has subconsciously on the viewer and why it's important to know the rules. Yeah. So you can break them if you want or you can use them to enhance your story. Austin, do you have anything you'd like to recommend to stumble upon next? Yeah, I want to recommend a film called X-Ray from the early 80s. It's a slasher film. It's about a a woman who goes to a hospital to uh, just get the results of some tests. And little does she know that a boy that she spurned on Valentine's Day when they were children, who murdered her best friend, is loose and is 
impersonating a a doctor in the hospital and is uh has changed out her chart and makes her stay there and is i don't know if he's trying to fall in love with her or if he's or trying to have her fall in love with him or if he just wants to punish her but really the thing that fascinates me about the film and this seems timely is almost nobody in the film asks her permission about her body asks her questions about her body all the men just demand that her body be theirs to do with cool I mean, that's it, very timely yeah it it might not be the best thing right now because it might be you know triggering for yeah for for many specific reasons but well, it's a, the world is triggering to us right now yeah. so go for it so the recommendation is on point with that yeah it's a it's, it's a brand yeah it's a very it's it's not the best film but it's an entertaining film like the thing that i'm speaking about is an underlying theme within it. It's not necessarily the entirety of the film. Like, mm-hmm. There's some really great deaths. There's some really wonderfully staged murders. So it's fun. It's yeah. it's not an indie film, but it's low. It's not a high budget film. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of value in that. I think mm-hmm. we spend as much as we love the Lubitsch of the world, and mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. We cannot just ex- devour cinema that is expertly done with all of the best craftsmen. Yeah available at all the money and all the resources like what if you start watching more cinema that is made much lower budgets what stories you get to see yeah and unlike i find some horror films it's a film that has a thought in its head Mm -hmm. like it's talking about this even like talking about the body in a in a very interesting or in an open way that that allows for conversation to be had very cool Emily, do you have anything that you would like to stumble upon? I do. I would like to recommend the film Total Eclipse. And it stars Leonardo DiCaprio when he was quite young. Mm -hmm. And... David Thewlis, I believe. David Thewlis. Thank you. Exactly. And it's about the love story of Arthur Rimbaud, the poet. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really beautiful queer love story. Mm -hmm. It's about poetry. If you're into poetry, which I very much am, this one's a good one for you. If you like Bright Star, mm-hmm. uh, this you'll really enjoy this film if you can find it. It's not easy to find. Right. But Total Eclipse, very, very good, very romantic. And if you haven't seen Bright Star and you don't know what I'm talking about, that is the movie by Jane Campion about John Keats yeah. and his love for Fanny Brown. So another one, another poetry film. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, it's spring, feeling romantic. Feeling into poetry. I'm always feeling into poetry. Yeah. You're not I'm re- also staring at Rumbo right now. And I was like, oh, yes. A, a season in hell. <laughs> Wait, we're doing poetry. We're doing theater. Let us talk about Rumbo. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I, I love what you got. I don't got much. <laughs> but, but you got me, which I guess is not much. <laughs> Woo! So I guess on that note, we're going to be cutting down our recording to about once a month. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe every six weeks. Maybe every six weeks. We are entering the. Hell season. This is this is our busy season. Mm-hmm. We make progressive Democratic ads. Yeah. And so we are really going to be smoking through the election in november yeah so it's gonna be harder and harder for us to make these podcast recordings and edit them Mm -hmm. so we're gonna keep going so do keep your eye out we'll be posting on instagram and our stories Mm -hmm. 
And um, we're going to be starting a TikTok soon. Yep. It'll be at Fishtown Films. That'll be starting up soon. So we'll post about that in Instagram so you guys can check it out when that comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be around. We'll be talking, but uh, it's just going to be a little bit less than we were doing previously, yeah. which is cool. You yeah. know, we'll, we'll get we'll get to it when we can. It is what it is. But we'll be picking back up in yeah. November once the election is over. And, and mm-hmm. in December, we've picked a date. Mm-hmm. We will be releasing our film citywide in December. Yes. So pay attention to all the details of that in november we're really going to be promoting when it's coming out mm-hmm. where it will be available spoiler it'll be available on vimeo mm-hmm. to rent or to purchase we'll give you a lot more details closer to the date but yes. currently it is in the sound mixing stage we are getting so close to its completion yeah and we cannot wait to share it with you yeah so as always you can follow us on instagram at fishtown films on Twitter, where we never check, yep. and soon on TikTok. Which will be amazing. We'll just, be so good at TikTok. We'll, 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 we're going to start off really high, and it'll just slowly come down from there. It's just going to be, we're probably the best you've ever seen. Yeah. On it, on the platform, everybody's going to be like, what? This is amazing. Yeah. These the, people. The, these these two behind the camera people are totally yes. in their element. Nothing makes for better subject matters than people who prefer to be behind the camera. Yeah. Put them right in front and see what happens. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> it'll it'll go about as well as it sounds. This is Catherine's fault. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for visiting with us and listening, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye.